Colossians chapter 2. We'll be focusing on verses 20 to 23 this morning. But I'm going to read uh, the passage leading up to that that we covered last week because of the connections between those. So follow along as I read, please. Colossians chapter 2. I'll read verses 16 to 23. We'll focus on verses 20 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In verses 16 to 19 last week, we talked about uh, Paul kind of getting specific with this idea of being taken captive that he had introduced previously. So he said, don't be taken captive by rules or by experiences, rather be captivated by Christ as part of his body where we grow with the growth that is from God. In this week's passage, he's going to expand on being taken captive by rules, noting a number of problems with that thinking. Paul never advocates casting off all rules for living, and he even provides a number of them, a number of rules himself, including the rule or the command of not being taken captive by rules. So following rules is apparently not the same as being taken captive by rules. We need to have a distinction between those things. Paul knows that rules need to be understood in their proper place or they are not helpful. In fact, rules outside of their proper place are harmful. For example, rules are harmful uh, when they become the road to salvation. Rules or the keeping of rules or the doing of good works, we are not saved by rule keeping. We are saved by Christ through faith. Faith, really trusting that he kept the rules for us. But to then say, yeah, Christ kept the rules, I too will keep the rules, and together, salvation is purchased, salvation is earned is missing the point. That's harmful to view rule keeping that way. So if you view rule keeping as the gateway to salvation or the path to heaven, that is harmful to your soul. All eternity, that's putting it mildly. But that's not really the problem Paul addresses here. He does address that problem in other places. He addresses it really in, in far stronger terms than he addresses here. But that is one way in which rule-keeping can be harmful. 
What is Paul talking about? Well, rule keeping can also be harmful when it becomes the sum of Christianity or when Christianity is reduced to rule keeping. That is also harmful to us. That's the problem that Paul, I think, is addressing here. Taking Christianity and reducing it to rule keeping, or really we could say reducing to good works, reducing to morality, reducing to behavior. If you were to talk to the majority of people in our state, in our area, and I'm sure that the number of those who are somewhat biblically literate uh, is decreasing by the minute, (laughs) but many people across our state, uh, all of us, I've mentioned before, everybody's uncle is a preacher, somehow in the entire state of West Virginia. Mine's, I did have an uncle that was a preacher, but I'm not from West Virginia. Uh, It still applies though. So they have a, a smattering of Bible verses memorized. They grew up in church, they know aspects of teaching, but they still miss the heart of Christianity because everyone is is convinced that it comes down to this message of try your best, do your best. Christianity reduced to behavior and to rule-keeping. A Christian is someone who does or doesn't do such and such. How could you do this? You're you're a Christian. Uh, Why would you not do that? You're a Christian, and that's what Christianity is. And so even if they see themselves as inconsistent with that, like they measure it against a standard of behavior because that's all that most people have been told it is from people in pulpits just hammering behaviorism. Do, 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 don't, 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 don't. But that's not the sum of what Christianity is. Be like asking someone what a Christian is or does, and their answer boils down to a a Christian is a person who keeps these rules. Do you see the problem with that definition? Because that's a deep, deep problem. A Christian is a person who does something? That is not the definition of what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who trusts Christ. That's the definition. That's the foundation of those type of things. And so boiling it down to a Christian is a person who keeps these rules is not true, and it's not helpful. It's harmful both to an unbeliever looking at Christianity from the outside and for the believer thinking about their own Christianity. The same danger, uh, the same danger of reducing Christianity to rule-keeping can happen with rules not found in the Bible— A Christian is a person who doesn't smoke or drink or play cards. And some people, I think that would be like the trifecta of what a Christian isn't. So this can happen with rules outside of the Bible. It can also happen with rules found in the Bible. A Christian is a person who doesn't murder, who doesn't lie, who doesn't commit fornication. Now, while those things ought to be something that characterize believers, it's not by way of definition. Because if it's definitional, a Christian is a person who doesn't murder, then does everybody who stops, who who doesn't commit murder, are they a Christian? Are we saved by not committing murder? Are we saved by not lying? Are we saved by not committing fornication? Right? Do you see the problem of having that as a definition? As if then Christianity is the only road to murderlessness, truth-telling, and 
purity in those type of areas. You can look around the world and know that is not the case. There are all sorts of philosophies or religion, theistic or atheistic, that would all come to the same conclusions that some of these things should not happen. And sure, some of those also avoid those things, right? But that's different. That fruit does not define the tree. In verse 21, Paul lists some regulations or some rules that probably were examples from the false teachers threatening the Colossian Christians. He may be quoting them, or he may be sort of satirically uh, summarizing them. See, in verse 21, there's a quote here. Uh, You you misread this passage, all of a sudden you walk away being like, oh, I shouldn't handle taste or touch. Uh, And if you do that, then you really haven't missed the passage. If if you leave this sermon today thinking, oh, Paul said don't touch, handle, or taste, and that's what I ought to do. Uh, I explain everything really badly or you have a problem listening because that's not what the passage says and not where we're going. These aren't really quotes from any passage in the Bible directly, uh, but they do echo some of the requirements of the Mosaic law regarding food. Uh, Like Paul has mentioned already in verse 16, we see those things tied together. Right there, verse 16, last week, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. And we look back at Leviticus and saw all these different things. Eat this, don't eat this. If you eat this, right? You'll be defiled. It will defile you. You will be unclean, right? These are the things that you eat. They're clean. They're clean for you. But it wasn't even just don't eat them, right? Don't touch them. Uh, There were all these things that could contaminate uh, just almost really even by accident. And there were ways to become purified, to become clean again. You touched a dead body, right? You were unclean. You were not able to come before the Lord uh, in worship until that period of uncleanness had ended. So what what you ate, uh, what you drink, what you handled, all these different things, even just sicknesses that could come up uh, or monthly cycles, all sorts of things that could make you unclean uh, to not be able to come before the Lord. So there are details of that, even if these aren't quotes and they're taking that idea and they're, they're pushing it further. It is hard to eat something that you aren't handling or touching, uh, but not always was it a sin to touch those type of things. So I think there's a sense in which they're drawing from the Old Testament and those cleanness, uncleanness laws, they're also pushing it further. But we see that all throughout what the Pharisees did and how Jesus opposed them, right? Where they took the Sabbath rules, something that was a gift from God to his people and a command that they were supposed to obey, and then they added things onto it. And I can't look at any of those passages with thinking, boy, how hard you had to work in order to rest, which is ironic. And they made man slave to the Sabbath instead of the Sabbath being a gift given by God for man. And they did all sorts of different things about, like, they they tithed down to the specifics, uh, but they failed any sense of mercy, justice, or or truth. And so they, they, uh, what, strained at a gnat and swallowed a camel, I think is the phrase that Jesus used. Such a vivid image to those type of things. So there's a sense in which they're drawing from those, and we saw that from verse 16, drawing from Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, but then also pushing that a little bit further, adding to the commandments of God, the the precepts and teachings of, of men, and then teaching the commandments of men, the teachings of men as if they were the commands of God. This is what it means to be clean. This is what it means to obey the Sabbath. This is how you do it. 20 yards or what I, there was a specific in the 
the teaching of the rabbis around the time of Jesus. It was like you could go X number of paces, uh, 50, 100, 150, I don't remember what it was, but they, you could go so many steps from your dwelling, and after that, you were on a journey and you weren't allowed to journey. Right? You could carry this much, but not this much, uh, because, you know, 500 grams or some, you know, down to a specific weight. Below that, not work. Above that, work. <laughs> Get out your scale. Measure it. Maybe measure it the night before. Well, not the night before because it started the night before. So measure it the day before to know what you could carry and how, measure the distance to know how far you could go. And then there was the absurdity. And I think I, I heard a story, maybe this is apocryphal, that some of them would, would, the day before the Sabbath, they would take something that they owned and they would set it up down the path because then that was their property. And then they could journey the 150 steps to that, but then they could go another 150 steps. Is that really what God intended? Absolutely not, right? So, so we take the commands of God, and we'll talk about that, but they also push it further. And I think that that's very common with this type of philosophy, this type of false teaching. What are the problems with rules? Rules like these, maybe... Uh, maybe based out of the Old Testament, maybe not based out of the Old Testament, because there's all sorts of rules that we could do. What are the problems with rules and with, with reducing Christianity to rule-keeping? Well, the problems with rules, I think Paul lists four. First, they're temporary. Do not handle, <clears throat> do not taste, do not touch. All, <clears throat> excuse me, all refer to things that perish as they are used. Do you see that in parentheses in verse 22? Do not handle, the regulations do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, things like those, re- referring to things that all perish as they are used. And that idea of perishing is not like the thing itself dies, but it's something that uh, decomposes. That's what this word perishable, like, right? If you, you buy a can of spam, it's good forever, because it's not really food. Uh, But you buy a banana, and it's rotten by the time you get home, and your house is filled with fruit flies, uh, which I just, by God's grace, it won't be in the new heavens, the new earth, or they won't fly up in your nose. I don't know. But there's something curse-related to those wretched things. I hate those fruit flies so bad. Back to the sermon. Rules are temporary, and I think what Paul is talking about in this parenthesis, referring to these rules, these regulations, all are centered around perishable things, echoes Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23, he's, being con- he's been confronted and thus is confronting the Pharisees who had built up all of these rules, who were teaching as commandments of God, what was really not, what was just the teachings of men. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, Mark interjects, thus he declared all foods clean. And he, Jesus, said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. New covenant Christianity, right? Christianity is new covenant. Uh, We're not the only one that recognizes that there's something more to that unclean, to uncleanness than just eating. Uh, We lived in Metro Detroit for a number of years while I was in seminary and worked at a company and there was a Muslim man seeking to be devout who worked there as well. Uh, And every so often the company would buy pizza for the workers and and he would eat the pizza uh, and he ate pepperoni pizza. Some of you got that. You know, as much as pepperoni is food, kind of like spam, it is uh, from pigs. And that is not halal. (laughs) The opposite of clean. And he did that ignorantly. And then when he, just not knowing what the meat came from, not asking what the meat came from, uh, and then when he discovered what he had eaten, he's horrified. And he actually went to, I guess it's his imam, and said, here's what's happened. I did this out of ignorance. And he was just like, no, you're okay, because it was done out of ignorance, but move forward. And maybe not every imam would do that, right? And it's not we're not trying to learn from another thing, but even they recognize it's kind of like it's not just what you eat, but like your intention in eating that made a little bit of a difference there in that situation. Rules and regulations, so many of them that we impose on ourselves or on others, center around external things. Here they center around perishable foods, things that are either digested in our stomachs or decompose in a trash heap. Is that really what spiritual life is all about? The spirituality flow from your diet and build on things that are, that are so temporary as perishable foods? No. Rules like that miss the point. These three rules, though, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Uh, they aren't the only things that were being emphasized by these false teachers. Last week, we saw there was a focus on food laws uh, and on drinking laws or drinking principles or practices, as well as on calendar or holy day laws, like festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. And we'll talk about a little bit later, but the problem that now exists with these kind of rules goes beyond the fact that food is perishable. I think that's just an illustration that Paul is using to help us think about a whole world that is passing away. Not just the food that is perishable, But it's the world that is passing away, a a kingdom, a former kingdom that used to be in power that has now been conquered. These rules have to do with an old kind of life that is tied just to this world rather than the world that is to come. So it's not just the fact that food is perishable that's the problem. It's that so many other things are perishable and there's a whole life There's a whole world characterized by its perishableness, transience, passing away, temporariness. Are our lives, our spiritual lives that go on into eternity, are those supposed to be built on rules that center only on temporary things? Paul's answer to that is no. These rules are temporary. That's the first problem. They're also human. They are according to human precepts and teachings. Again, you kind of have to read the sentence carefully, or you could diagram it. That would be good, diagramming sentences. 
grammar, right? I know some of you are with me on this. The regulations, and then you have an M dash. If you don't know the difference between hyphens, N dashes, and M dashes, I'd be very, very glad to talk to you about them. Regulations, jump over verse 21, most of verse 22. Regulations according to human precepts and teachings. That's what he's talking about. Do you see how the sentence is interrupted and he comes back to it? Just say yes, and I can move on. Great. These regulations, these rules are according to human precepts and teachings. Many of the things that they're talking about were part of that old system. They were part of the shadow that verse 17 says has been fulfilled by the substance or the reality, the thing itself, which is Christ. To emphasize the law, this is what struck me about this. This is why I was like, wait a minute, how can these things be human? How can they be human precepts and teachings if verse 21 is tied to verse 16 and verse 16 points us back to Leviticus and Leviticus didn't come from man, Leviticus came from God. So how can questions of food and drink regard to a festival, new moon, or a Sabbath and then the, that what flows out of that, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, How can those things just be according to human precepts and teachings when they came from God? And the answer comes again in verse 17, because those things were a shadow that pointed to the substance. And when the substance came, the shadow passed away. So to take what God had given as a shadow and hold on to it, now that the substance is here, is to turn the commandments of God into the precepts and teachings of man. To say that we must do what God said needed to be done and then fulfilled in Christ, to to say that that's there as if it's still as binding as it used to be, pretending Christ isn't there, is to turn God's commands against him, failing to recognize that God said that they're fulfilled. They were a shadow, but the substance is here. We can't pretend that they are the substance. Pretend that God himself didn't say that they are only a shadow. This is how we can take those type of things and use it unlawfully. To emphasize the law apart from Christ is to use it unlawfully. That's the wording of 1 Timothy. They don't understand what they're talking about. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. But to reduce Christianity to law-keeping is to use the law unlawfully. To use it contrary to God's purpose. You don't get to use something contrary to God's purpose and say that it's honoring to God or from God. It's not anymore. You've twisted it. The commandments originally from God become the commandments of men when they're used out of place. The problem with these type of rules and reducing Christianity to rule-keeping or law-keeping, it's temporary, it's human, And the problem with these rules is that they're foolish. This is verse 23. These, these what? These regulations. These indeed, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They have an appearance of wisdom in these things. The arguments made toward keeping these rules may sound wise. They may sound persuasive. They often do. Paul already talked about that. Don't be deluded with plausible arguments, chapter 2, verse 4. 
The rules may sound wise and persuasive, and the fruit of the false teachers' lives may be impressive. Look at their morality. Look at their lives. Their teaching sounds good. They make a good case for it. And, like, look at the fruit of those type of things. Like, they're clean. They're moral. They're good. This must be the right way. It sounds good, and it looks good. It has an appearance of wisdom, and it, that may be true, but these false teachers lacked real, true, godly wisdom. They lacked wisdom. It only appeared to be wise from the outside. The tomb cleaned up, but inside were dead man's bones. As one author put it, the false teachers claim to offer a wise and comprehensive system of spiritual growth is nothing but a sham. For all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ, not in rule-keeping. The folly of these things shows itself in what he says here in these three things, the self-made religion. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, which I think can be expressed in the kind of phrasing of, look what I have done. Look at me, right? You look at, you look at their life, and it looks really good, and they're all about you looking at their life and saying it looks good and showing how they did it. I made myself, right? It's that, that American bootstrap thing, right? I pulled myself up by my own moral bootstraps. I have become this paradigm of morality and godliness and righteousness and rule-keeping. Look at me. Is the focus on the teacher, is the focus of the teaching on you, or is it on Christ, do you have a self-made religion? That's all that you have is a self-made religion. You are going to hell. Because you aren't enough to save yourself. Your rule-keeping isn't that. That's the problem. That's, I mean, to say that that's harmful is so slight, right? If you reduce your Christianity to rule-keeping and then you keep those rules, that's it. No Christ, because you don't have a need for him, because you have your self-made religion, you're damned. Apart from Christ, outside of Christ, they had the self-made religion. And because it worked, it looked wise. They had this, they emphasized, they promoted asceticism. The first is like, look what I have done. Maybe this is, look how humble I am. This asceticism has to do with that, that humility or a false humility because it's false because if you're making sure everybody looks at and thinks about how humble you are, it's not humility anymore, right? Uh, I'm going to be publishing a book uh, about like, being the most humble person in the world. I want to make sure that you guys all, all read that. Uh, maybe you can learn from my example. <laughs> old, old joke. I'm not really publishing a book on that. Is there a show made of ascetic, humble practices? A show made of fasting? 
Jesus addressed this. Oh, 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 Peter, are you okay? I've just been fasting for the last five days. I just just love Jesus so much. Wow, he is troubled. (laughs) Yes, is there a show made of those things? Oh, you look really sick. Well, it's probably just because I haven't eaten. Is there a show made of giving? Like the plate passes. Sorry, I just got to pull out my wallet. (laughs) Sounding the trumpet for the giving of alms. Is there a show made of that or some other self-denying practice? Right? Is Is it for humility or is it to show humility? If it's to show humility, it's not humility. This is what this problem is with asceticism, to promote it, like, look how ascetic I am. It's not really denying yourself in order to draw close to the Lord. And that's the kind of things that they were doing. They were making this show of these type of things. And as Jesus said, if we're making a show of those type of things, if we're doing them, even ascetic practices done for others to see, then we have received our reward. But it's not from God. They were foolish in promoting self-made religion, promoting asceticism, and promoting severity to the body with enough discipline, with enough regulation, with enough focus and motivation, I can change myself. You're not good enough because you haven't tried hard enough. But if you work harder... Go to bed earlier, get up earlier, eat less, exercise more, read more, study more, right? This is kind of like deny yourself. Like, why are you spending any time enjoying yourself? Don't enjoy yourself. Be, be harsh to yourself, severe to your body, right? Even taking Paul's own words, again, because it's like these could be extra biblical or these could be biblical. Where Paul says, hey, I, I, I beat my body. I keep it under subjection because I don't want to be cast away. And so you take that and only that, and you're like, see, there it is. Effort, 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 work, work, work. Beat yourself into holiness. I can change by the grit of my teeth, but you can't. And that's the last problem with these rules is that they're ineffective. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. How much value? No value. Back in college, I recognized that soda was not healthy. Shocker. So I decided for a New Year's resolution to not drink soda for a year. Uh, Apart from an incident involving punch, uh, I made it. Kind of like the Muslim who ate the pepperoni. Just didn't think about what it was made of. So I count that. Uh, In January, after completing the resolution, I tried soda, and it still tasted good. Sugar will do that to you. Well, one year must just not have been long enough. So the following year, I made another, right, I... I, uh, I made another shocking discovery that French fries are also not healthy. And this time I resolved to not, not to eat French fries for five years. And I did it. Leanne is my witness. Five years, no French fries. Then after five years, it's a long time. After five years, I tried French fries again, and sure enough, 
they still tasted good. Wow. No external rule or regulation over any period of time could change my taste buds. Side note, like you can get used to turkey bacon. This isn't really relevant. It's definitely not in my notes. And it tastes okay until you have bacon again. And you're like, what was I eating? This stuff's garbage. That's, I don't even know how that applies. It doesn't apply. That's just, that was, I had a sermon professor, right, who, if he was away from the pulpit, he called it his sandbox. He was playing, and he needed to get out of the sandbox, get back to his notes, right? That was, that was clearly over here. No external rule or regulation could change my taste buds. And even though I didn't handle, taste, or touch the French fries, I still liked them. That's what Paul is saying here. Even when you institute strict rules for yourself, even if the fences that you put up do stop your bad behavior, those things don't really get to the heart of the problem because as has been said so often, they don't get to the heart of the problem because the problem is the heart. And no fence, no matter how high, strict, followed is going to change you inside. It doesn't work like that. Regulations like this, even if they seem effective from the outside, are ineffective of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you put a wild animal in a cage, you now have a caged wild animal. The cage may contain it, but it will not change it. And it shows its wildness at the first opportunity. If all you have done to your sinful flesh, which is what Paul calls, right, like the desires inside of you to go against God, if all you've done is suppress it by rules, let me just tell you that it is still there, unchanged, unholy, waiting. It can wait for a long time. It's a monster lying dormant. Put a crack in that fence, and it is out, wreaking havoc and fulfilling its lusts. Rules cannot change you. Rules are, like, these are temporary, and they're human, they're foolish, and they're ineffective. And here are the two dangers that I see with reducing Christianity to rule-keeping. The dangers of rule-keeping. The first is when someone fails to live by those rules. If all Christianity is, is rule-keeping, and again, as I said, just in our area and, and, and outside of that, it's not like it's limited to West Virginia or limited to Central Appalachia, but it's very, very common here that Christianity just reduced to rule-keeping. And when you reduce it to rule-keeping, and you try and you fail, despite how hard you've tried, Eventually, you give up. Some give up in their, through their failures, and they jettison both rule-keeping and any notion of Christianity, thinking that something is either terribly wrong with Christianity or something is terribly and irredeemably wrong with them. Right? They're either kind of like, if Christianity is just rule-keeping, then I'm done with it. That's not going to make any change. Or it's like, oh, Christianity is rule-keeping, and it's a standard that I have just fallen short of over and over so much that eventually it's just like, I guess it's just not for me. I guess I'm just not good enough to be a Christian. And just like some of those other statements, do you recognize like how horrible and sad of a statement that is? 
I'm not good enough to be a Christian? Kind of be like, that's step one. <laughs> right? Like you, you said that as if it was the conclusion. That's actually the introduction that you're not good enough to be a Christian. Right? But so many of us is like, well, Christianity is rule keeping and I can't do it. So I'm just going to look from the outside. I know I'm going to hell. I know I deserve it. And it's just like, I just can't live up to that. And that's just devastatingly sad. You know, if, if, that's, if that's you, right, not to like critique, just like you're, it is, just that's the first step. It's not that Christians are those who are better than you are. As if there's somehow no access to you on that. It's actually that first step of recognizing, no, I'm not good enough for God. Right, that's a foundational truth. Like, but it's not through earning, it's not through effort, it's not by rule keeping, but by receiving an undeserved gift from the gracious hand of God. So if you don't be discouraged that you're not good enough, be encouraged that you're not good enough because it's only the unworthy who aren't good enough who can receive the gift. So that's you if that's someone else, right? Just like, don't try to pretend like, well, maybe if you tried a little harder. It's like, no, that's just pushing the same thing that doesn't work. Square peg into a round hole. Just stop. Receive. You aren't good enough. Own that, right? So some doing that, the danger is like, I'm just going to jettison it. Um, they go from failing to keep the rules to giving up and walking away from whatever they do know about Christ. People that can be, be incredibly orthodox and have memorized all of the right verses and just still see themselves just desperately on the outside because they failed to really get the good news of the good news of the gospel. And we know that danger, but there's another danger of rule keeping and that danger is when someone succeeds. Do you know that it's actually dangerous if you think about Christianity as rule keeping? It's dangerous for you to succeed. I actually think it's more dangerous to succeed as a rule keeper than it is to fail as a rule keeper. When someone succeeds in living by the rules through internal motivation, maybe from external pressure from family or friends or community, this is, a, this is dangerous. This success is fertile ground for arrogance, which is a sin. The arrogance that leads to the passing judgment on others, verse 16 disqualifying others, verse 18, taking others captive like the false teachers were doing. Oh, you're having a difficult time with this? I, I used to. Now I don't. Now I figured it out. It was just more motivation. It was just get up earlier. It was just work harder. And I did. And you can too. Come on. Let's just work harder. I'll check in with you. I'll be your accountability partner to work harder. It's fertile ground to arrogance, taking others captive, but there's an even deeper danger than that, and it's, it's a personal danger, not just the danger that it extends to others. But our sinful flesh, or our self, our flesh, that's what Paul calls it, it delights not only in gratifying its own lusts, like that's what we often think about with the flesh, right? Like that desire to steal, to murder, to, to lust or to commit adultery, to covet, right? Like we think about those baser, right, obviously known as sinful desires, that the flesh leans toward that. It does gratifying doing that, but the flesh also delights in exerting its own energy to restrain its lusts. 
in order to arrogantly assert independence from God and our own self-sufficiency. That was a long sentence. The flesh isn't only tempting you to lust. The flesh it also delights not just in you sinning, but in you stopping sinning on your own so that you pat yourself on the back. Right? That's like a distorted mirror image of what actual morality is that God has called us to. For us to succeed in moral pursuits without intentional faith-fueled dependence on God brings no glory to him. This life isn't about what you can do on your own. And if it brings no glory to him, it falls short of his glory. And falling short of God's glory is called sin. Doing something without dependence on God brings him no glory. And to bring God no glory is sin. So to do something without dependence on God, even something that God has required of you, to do it without him is sin. This isn't about you showing off to God what you can do, which is really like the life that I want to live. I don't want to depend on God. I mean, Satan could have gotten me on any number of temptations. This is like, and I just know from, again, that internal motivation, external pressure. It's like, well, these are the bad things that I can't do. But boy, I can just show mom and dad and I can show the church, I can show God how much I can do and how worthwhile it was that he saved me. I'm gonna do. Why don't you throw yourself off the temple? Because the Bible says that he'll give his angels charge over you that you won't even trip on a stone. What? Well, you're the son of God, just show it and, and make yourself bread. Act independently of God. Demonstrate your self-sufficiency. Seek the wisdom that God has. Just If you eat the fruit, you will, right? It's just that we don't need God. That's that root aspect of sin. It's me. I can do it. Let me do it. And then when we do it, like, see, I, I knew I didn't need God. Obedience without Christ is still sinful. And reducing Christianity to rule keeping separates you from Christ. Because this is the truth you need more than moral improvement. You need more than that. You need more than just trying harder and doing better. You need transformation. That's what you need. And we will see eventually in Colossians, starting, Lord willing, just a few weeks, we will see that obedience flows out from transformation. It's like, oh, Peter's lawlessness, no rules, chuck it all off, and we're just going to run rampant with sin. Not what I'm saying, not what Paul's saying, but we got to start here because this is where Paul starts. The need for transformation so that we're transformed, it flows out, not just something that's forced in. But here's the thing, obeying is easier than seeking to be transformed. Obeying is something that we can do. We, I, my flesh, right? Obeying is something that your flesh can do on its own. Transformation is something that has to be done to us by God. 
The glorious point that Paul has been making this whole chapter so far is that if you have trusted in Christ, you have been transformed. This isn't just like a need like, oh, okay, I got to stop trying. And then what do I, how hard do I work to get transformed? Like, right? Like we're just constantly shifting it back into that. But it's like, no, 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 no. In Christ, you are transformed. Like it has happened. You, uh, from Christ, all those who are in Christ through our union with Christ, right? We have transformation. Paul has already mentioned this union with Christ in this letter a few times. We have been filled, we have been filled in him. We were circumcised in him. We were buried with him in baptism. We were raised with him. We were made alive together with him. These are realities that have already taken place out of which setting our affections will flow, out of which being a different kind of husband or father or wife or child or master or slave. That's going to flow out of transformation, but transformation doesn't happen by forcing it back. When we think about the death of Christ on the cross, I think probably the first phrase, the first truth that would come to our minds is Christ died for us, right? This isn't a trick question. That's true. Uh, Christ died for us our sins, the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. And we talked about that in verses 13 to 15. We were dead. We were like our sin nailed on the cross, his cross. Because of the cross, debtors like us are forgiven. His payment applies to our debt. That's, that's Christ died for us. But there's also a complementary truth that we died with Christ. We talk about this less. But it's just as significant for us. Yes, Christ died for us, and we died with Christ. Paul frequently emphasizes this, we died with Christ. He talks about, we have died with Christ to sin in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then we could ask, well, when did we die to sin? And he tells us, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We died with Christ to sin. Galatians 5, he says the same thing. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, which is a faith relationship, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Before we trusted in Christ, and this, was, this is another thing that sort of confused me this week. Maybe you've thought about it too. Like, we were dead, and now we are dead. Have you ever, like, wondered how those truths mesh, right? Like, you were dead in your trespasses, and even though you were dead, you died. But, like, but I thought I already was. Did I get, like, more dead? Like, was I slightly alive? Anybody catch it? We were dead to God. We were alive to sin. Dead to God, alive to sin. Now in Christ, that's flipped. We are alive to God and we are dead to sin. And this is a change of the sphere in which we live. 
This was a change of the kingdom that we belonged to. He, that's back to verse 13, delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So this dying to one and being alive in another is that, that transfer from the, the sphere, the domain, the kingdom that we belonged to, that we were a part of, and the Lord of that kingdom that we answered to. That's probably the clearest way of looking at it. Who's in charge of us? And it was sin. We were dead to God because we were alive to sin, answering to sin. But now that shift has happened and we're dead from that old kingdom, that old world. We've left that sphere and we're a new one that is under the rulership of God. It's a change of the Lord that we answer to. What does that mean? And here's my attempt at trying to explain it to myself. Maybe that'll be helpful to you. Anger is frequently a sin, not always, but pretty close. Anger is frequently a sin, and it's a sin that I've struggled with throughout my life. So what it means that I have died with Christ to the sin of anger doesn't just mean that I don't get to be angry anymore. And I think that this is as far as we go with sin, right? Rule keeping, I don't get to do what I want in this sin. I don't get to be angry anymore. But has there ever really been a time that, like, that anger worked? You ever gotten angry and you were like, that was, that went well. Like, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that I wouldn't talk to my wife for the evening. I'm glad that I yelled at my children and, and stormed out of this. That was, that was good. Like, I'm proud of myself for responding in that type of, of anger. It's like, right, do you ever feel like, boy, I'm really glad I had the opportunity to do that? And then you come to Christ and you're like, what, I don't get to be angry anymore? Like, oh, what a downer, right? No, it's not that I don't get to be angry anymore, like I'm missing out. It means I don't have to be angry anymore. See, when I was in my flesh, I had to do what my flesh wanted, right? I was a slave to it. There wasn't any other option. It was just sin. No, I didn't sin every time in every way, right? But it was just kind of like I had to sin. That's all that I could do. It's all that I wanted to do. There was no other option for that. But what I've been rescued from is it's not like, oh, I don't get to sin anymore. It's like, oh, wow, you mean I don't have to sin anymore? Like there's actually an option of me being able to please God. Do you see that that's like, when it's like, oh, I don't get to, I'm missing out on an opportunity, all the other kids are doing it. But it's slavery and it's harmful to you, to others, it's displeasing to God. And to be like, wow, you can actually rescue me from that desire to sin which resides in me? Like, you're gonna free me from me? So I don't have to treat my wife and kids and friends like that anymore? Sign me up. That's freedom. And maybe that's easy to do when it comes to like anger, but when the sin is still something that we have like a tie to, it's like, oh, I don't get to fill my sexual lusts anymore. I don't get to. No, you don't have to. So that's the freedom offered to you in the gospel. Freedom from having to, because it's a new heart that actually wants something different. So I've been set free from slavery to the sin of anger. Sin, including anger, it used to be my Lord. It used to be my master, but not anymore. See, I died to that life. For when Christ died on the cross, I died with him. 
Sin is not the only authority or master that ruled over my life before I died with Christ. So Paul also says that we have died with Christ to the law. The same type of rules that he's mentioning here and in other places. Galatians chapter two, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We had a friend, we had uh, friends from college uh, who dated through college, uh, and then they got, they got married, they had some kids, uh, not on Facebook a whole lot, but if I went on Facebook now, I would see uh, this man not uh, with his wife that he married in college, the friend that we had and knew, I would see him and his children with, with another woman. And that sounds horrible, except what you introduced the, another sad part of the story, his first wife passed away from brain cancer. And then this other girl we also knew from college, uh, they married, and she took on being a mother to those children. So what looks like, oh, he's not fulfilling his obligations to his wife. No, he did fulfill his obligations to his wife. She died, which meant that their two death till death do us part, happened. So he's no longer married to her. So he's free to marry this other woman. He did. It's still following the Lord. Why do I mention that? Because Paul in Romans chapter seven uses that same illustration, right? A marriage is only binding. The law and the covenant of marriage is only binding as long as two people are alive. When one of them dies, it dissolves. And so he has as much obligation to his old wife who's in heaven, right? He has as much obligation to her as we have to the law. Because if you've died, you're no longer under the law. Do you not know, brothers, this is Romans chapter 7, I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. This is the argument that he makes, and he fast forward into Romans 7 a little bit further. Likewise, my brothers, like the woman who's, who was a widow and no longer has any obligation to her husband, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The written code, which had questions of food and drink regard to a festival, new moon, or a Sabbath, and could be summarized in do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Both our former slavery to sin and our slavery to the Mosaic law have ended with the death of Christ, specifically with our death with Christ. We were part of a world. It wasn't just you. We were part of a world or a system ruled over by sin and the law, and our death with Christ removed us from that world through death. You can't get more removed from this world than by death. That's the point. That's why the metaphor works. That's the point Paul makes in Galatians chapter 6. Even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, 
but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Sounds very similar to what he's talking about here. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. First glance, that one verse, I think it's verse 14, if you just jump to that, you can think world like John often uses it, right? The world as in the system of of sinfulness to be like, oh, I died to sin, flesh, and world, and those all mean the same thing. But that's not the context that he's talking about. Right? Dying to this world has to do with the pointlessness of circumcision because it's a whole system. So it's not just dying to sin, it's dying to circumcision. I have left the world in which circumcision ruled because I died to it and I'm alive with Christ. Sin and the regulations of the law We're part of the old world that we used to live in, but now we have died with Christ to that world. And if you died with Christ to the basic components of the old pre-Christ world, if you died with him to that, why, as if you were still alive in that world, would you submit to its rules, the rules of that world, rules like do not handle and do not taste and do not touch? This is Paul's concern here in our passage. Reducing Christianity to rule-keeping like this is to pretend that nothing happened in the death of Christ or that nothing changed for you. That's not true. You died with Christ, right? That's the phrasing of his question here. He's not just like, well, if this happened, Right? But the type of wording that he uses here is like, you, you died with Christ, right? That's why some translations take if and they push it to since, since you died with Christ. But it's, it's framed with if, if works, since gets us there too, but it's kind of somewhere in the middle. It's like, oh, I don't know, did I? But it's like the type of question is the if questions. Like, uh, if I'm Leanne's husband, like, and I am, then... Right? That's the type of question here. So it's like, I don't know, did I die with Christ? He's like, I'm talking to people who died with Christ. And if you died with Christ, you did, right? Yeah. Then why would you live as if you didn't? If you died with Christ, it means you died to sin and you died to the law. You can't just reduce your life down to rule keeping and pretend that that's what Christ died for because it's not. If you are a follower of Christ by faith in his death on the cross, don't live as if Christ's death didn't happen. Don't live as if in Christ's death that that there wasn't a massive change of everything about you. Because that's exactly what happened to Christ. And you don't need to search elsewhere for the secret to living the life that you were made to live, a life that pleases God. It's not hidden, and it's not found in reducing life to rule-keeping, and it's not found like we talked about in experiences. You don't have to search high and low for it. You don't have to search at all because you have it already. The life that pleases God is, is already yours in Christ. Father, thank you for what we have in Christ. Would you free us from slavery to our flesh in all its forms? The 
the forbidden excesses of, of sin and also from the arrogance of, of acting faithlessly apart from you. And I know that that is, uh, I have tendency both ways, we all do, but we are blind to seeing the danger of doing what you say without you. I think we're blind to that. So open our eyes to see what pleasing you really looks like. Open our eyes to see what Christ has done for us, to glory in the cross that has given us a whole new existence. And thank you for uh, the passage will continue. Uh, we set our minds on Christ because it's not just that we've died with him, but we've, we've been made alive with him. We need you, Father. We need your spirit to teach us. Teach us, please. Amen.